Thank you, Kathy, and, and thank you, worship leaders. I want to um, ask a question this morning to start with before we move towards our message. How many of you know somebody that needs the Lord? And how many of you are in fairly regular contact with that person? Yeah. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we all raise our hand to that question. And there was a time in, in our lives when we fit in that category of people, when we did not know you, when we were as, were as lost as lost could be, and of course being lost didn't even know it. Our Father in heaven, just from one Sunday to the next, well, my what things have transpired in our nation, in our country, and then the voices that explain to us what has transpired. And oh Lord, there are so many voices. And how desperately our country and our culture need to hear the voice above all voices. The voice of the Son of God himself. Father, thank you your people. Thank you for the grace that we've sung of this morning, the grace that rescued us from the wrath to come, from a judgment that we were so fit and poised to experience for all eternity. And yet here we are, your choice and redeemed people. And your word repeatedly tells us, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for the joy of salvation, and the calling upon every one of our lives to be your witnesses. And we thank you that you've not left us alone in this endeavor to bear witness because you promised us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Lord, thank you for this morning. How I need your help this morning. How we all do. Our God, we want to hear from you. Not merely the words of a man. Or a nicely packaged sermon with fine points. We want to hear something of heaven's voice. God, Draw near to us now in these moments, and may this time in your word 
mark us for eternity. We ask it in the great name that is far above every name, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who was dead, but behold, you have proclaimed, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and of hell. Lord, we revere you, and that's why we pray in your holy and high and exalted name. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. I read a book several years ago. It's probably been 15 years ago, and it was um, a book that caught my eye. Not Well, the title caught my eye, but then as I fanned through it a little bit, I saw that the foreword written to the book was written by uh, Dr. Ben, um, uh, Bonstrom's uh, father-in-law, Dana's father-in-law, Jan's dad. And so I read the foreword and I thought, well, if it's good enough for Ben, uh, I should read this book. So I grabbed it up. The book was entitled, The Taming of God. The Taming of God. In other words, the kind of thing that happens to young people that grow up in the church. And as I look out this morning, I see a handful of young people in our church, um, youth, uh, young men. And I think of the danger that they are in being in church. And you say, well, Pastor, wait a minute. It's a good thing that they're in church. Well, of course. But there's also a danger. And this was illustrated to me at the beginning of my Christian life. Back in 1978, I had only known the Lord a few months and had quickly steeped myself in God's Word, trying to make up for lost time. And I was part of the church in Medford, Oregon, the First Baptist Church there, and it was a large church, some 14, 1,600 people, had a large youth group and had a large college age group, and so age-wise, I fit in that group. But you have to understand that I did not come out of a Christian home. I had not been raised up in the church. And so I needed fellowship, and oftentimes found my heart aching because the fellowship was not what I would consider really beneficial fellowship. Fellowship meant let's all get together on Friday evening over at the big church uh, mess hall and let's play ping pong, pool, air hockey, uh, little, little shoot baskets, and let's eat pizza and somebody will tack on at the end a 10-minute little devotional and close in prayer. And I was 21 years old and had lived an ungodly lost life, and I was starving for the Word of God and starving for fellowship with like-minded believers who had been caught out of darkness and were now in the light and wanted to grow in that knowledge of God. And I found myself kind of in between two worlds. It was an odd experience, and I'm not trying to put myself up. I'm just saying I was a hungry baby Christian. And I'll never forget th this illustration. 
And I don't believe I've ever shared this with this church family. But when I was 21, our youth group leader talked to us one evening at our youth meeting, and he said, I need a couple volunteers. And uh, he looked over at me and he said, and our first one is Tony. <laughs> I didn't volunteer, uh, but I was asked. And he said, I need a couple people who, uh, it's our turn. It's our church's turn to go to the Union Gospel Mission. And we're going to go there on such and such an evening. I think it was a Friday evening or something. And we're going to go there and we're going to uh, pass out some food and we're going to talk to the people that have come in off the street. And we're going to this kind of the Skid Row area of Medford. And then I want a couple of you to share your testimony. And I spent a week with uh, something close to diarrhea, worrying about <laughs> that, that opportunity to share. I was a baby Christian. And the evening came, and uh, to make a long story short, it was my turn to get up after we had had the food and all. It was my turn to get up and share my testimony. And here's about 20 youth all standing around the men, and there's probably about 30 of these men and women who've come off the streets who are, of course, they're disheveled and tired and weary and many of them with a gaunt look in their eyes of drugs and alcohol and all the things that go on in the streets. And here they all were and it was my turn to share. And I was supposed to share a nice little testimony about how Jesus came into my heart. That was my assumption. And something happened that, that evening. As I stood before those men and I looked out into their faces, into their chalky faces and red eyes and beet red noses from years of alcoholism, and as I looked at their plight, I found myself broken. And I began to share my testimony, which quickly became something else. And I found myself in tears, pleading with these men regarding the judgment of God that they were under and the, the Lord's word to them to come out of darkness, come out of your unbelief, come out and come to Christ. And I was overwhelmed as I stood there, and I think I was supposed to speak for five minutes, and it was 15 or 20 minutes long, because I lost track of all time. All I could see was the need and the lostness and the glory of God and the gospel that had transformed my life. And I began to preach without realizing it. And I found myself just almost out of body experience. And the strangest thing happened when it was all done and I scarcely remembered what I had to say. There were teary eyes all over the place and some of the girls in the youth group, they were in tears. Girls tend to cry easier than men. And when we all gathered then to get back into the bus to head back for ping pong and popcorn, hardly anybody would talk to me. 
my own youth friends were kind of standoffish. And my youth leader, the pastor of the youth, came to me, put his arms around me, and gave me a big hug with tears in his eyes and said, my goodness, what happened? You were thundering the gospel, and I didn't even know it. When Jesus said, don't worry about the times and the epochs that the Father himself has set, that's not your concern. Don't even be overly concerned about end-time things and watching for signs of when the Lord is going to come, though there's a place for that, to keep our hope alive. But Jesus said this, here is your task. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. I think that part of the reason that there is a little witness is because we've forgotten that God has provided for us a power far beyond ourselves to bear witness. We're too self-reliant. We don't have our all our apologetic categories in place and ready to argue intellectually with somebody. And so we veer back away and don't live with a burning passion to reach the lost. And I'm with you in this. And I started by saying I'm speaking to some of our young people here. And we don't, of, we don't often tell them, our young people, you know when you're at school or you're around some of those friends that you have, and I don't want you to not have those friends, but when they begin to tell foul and dirty jokes and, and swear up a storm and speak in ways that you know, it's okay that you feel provoked by that. You don't have to join them. It's a right thing that your spirit is stirred in your hearts when you're around that kind of thing. What am I getting at? We who raise up our young ones in the church, they're in danger of being domesticated. When we got our little doggy Tozer, right within just a few months, we had to teach him. We still have furniture with the legs half eaten off of them and pillows that were thrown away because he tore them to pieces. And we had to teach him not to piddle on the carpet. We had to domesticate Tozer so that he could be an in-house doggy in the wintertime because it's cold here. But we've sometimes, we hear among us, pray for revival. But what would revival look like? Well, one of the things I believe that it would look like is the undomesticating of God's people. We've become far too tamed, as the book your dad wrote the foreword to speaks of. We serve a tamed God, and therefore we're a tamed group of disciples. And we believe that the highest goal of the gospel is to make us nice, when in reality it is to make us new brand new, alive, and radiant with the presence of Jesus Christ living within us and reflected through us both in word and in deed. 
Well, this morning's message, we're finally getting to it, is the gospel in six words. And I'm going to have you follow the passage with me. It'll be up above, or you can follow in your own Bible. But we're looking at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20 through verse 28. And I'd like you to follow with me, and then I'll point out what I mean by the gospel in six words. Verse 20, it says, Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Pastor, what do you mean by the gospel message in six words? Well, verse 21, we have the words, woe to you. And then in verse 28, we have the words, come to me. That in itself, and many of you have begun to read through the Bible in a year. And were we to take the message of the Bible, all 66 books, and were we, were we to reduce them and summarize them in six words, we could do no better than this. Woe, planet Earth. Woe, American culture. War Wars and outbreaks and wickedness and moral decline and spinning, twisted, um, manipulative lives through lies throughout the media. On and on and on it goes. We are drowning in a culture that has lost its way 
And Christ today, the Lord of heaven and earth, still speaks. And his voice is saying to our country and to the countries of the world, woe to you. Woe to you who have ignored God and rejected God from your lives. Woe to you who have chosen your own way. Woe to you who are puffed up, who believe you're wise and intelligent. Woe to you. And then at the same time, the same person says, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The same exact person uttered both. And from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, the same one continues to utter that message. And my concern about becoming domesticated is this, that all the emphasis is on come to me. But we're living in a culture that is arrogant, that is proud, that is rebellious, that has jettisoned and rejected all healthy and wholesome moral standards. And it, I mean, who would have believed even 20 years ago that we would hear that to say some of these practices, and I'm not even going to mention them this morning, these practices are immoral. And now that would be considered hate speech, bigoted hate speech to say, this is evil, this is wrong, this is going to con contaminate our country. Where is the balance? You see, when you come to someone who is lost and broken and life has given them a beating, they are searching and longing. They need the grace of God. They need the mercy of God. They need the love of God. They need the come to me. But what do we do when we live in a culture that's become so arrogant that it mocks the Christian message, it mocks the gospel, it mocks the Christ of God. What do we do with a culture like that? And you've heard me say this before. This idea of telling a rebellious sinner who mocks the very things we hold dearest in our lives, to say to that person, well, you know, God unconditionally loves you. That's not what they need to hear. They need to hear, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! You're unrepentant, and yet I have blessed you. You know, I told Kathy yesterday, as last, yesterday we had a really good talk. We visited for probably an hour. And we just sat there just reminiscing, and she was sharing what was going on at school and her ongoing efforts to reach kids at, for Christ at school and to help them and to believe in them and to love them and care about them. And uh, we just had a great conversation. But, you know, you say, well, Pastor Tony, this, this passage is back then. We haven't seen all the mighty miracles of Christ because he isn't on the earth and you know, Jesus practically erased disease from Israel while he was on earth. 
And if you'll read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he did these incredible miracles where he would do miracles all day long and heal tens of thousands. But listen, isn't any less a blessing from God that when you go home today, you will open the cupboard and open the refrigerator and there will be 40 different options what you should have for lunch today. Literally 40 different options. And as I was walking around the corner of our hallway, there were three cans sitting there because I spoil my dog. Lisa Wicks was kidding me the other day about it. But I buy these canned dog food that have the gravy in them that I can mix with his dry dog food. And I just stopped dead in my tracks and I looked at those three cans of dog food with the nice brown gravy and I thought to myself, I wonder how many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people right now on earth would love to have a can of this dog food to get them through the day. Is that any less a blessing from God? Our homes, our, our medical care, our food, running, hot and cold water, plumbing, a roof over our heads, all that we have. All of this is in the providence of God, is it not? Isn't all of it from his hand? And yet he says to our culture, woe to you. You have utterly rejected me. And yet my hand is outstretched every day. And I continue to bless you and give you what you need and you ignore me. Ingrates. Ingrates is what we used to call them. We used to say that family is a God-fearing family. Now we say they're a bunch of ingrates. This whole chapter is in many ways about who Jesus Christ is. Who he really is that this world so desperately needs to know. And not only who he is, but also what he says. And our Lord never pulled back. Both sides of the gospel, both wings of the bird of the gospel were always there. The holiness, the righteousness, the purity of God who calls us to repentance and to turn to him because we're under judgment. And the gracious invitation and even summons, come to me, all of you who are weary. And so this chapter tells us about who he is, what he says, and it also tells us what it is that determines which one of those he says to us. Does he say to us, woe to you? Or does he say to us, come to me? Which is it? And what determines it? Well, at the beginning of this chapter, the greatest of all uh, Old Testament prophets and the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, even John was a man and weak. And even though Jesus said of those born of women, 
None have risen greater than John the Baptist. And yet, when John found himself weak and suffering and tired, suffering from deprivation in the prison house of Herod, when that occurred, there came a time, even in, the, even in John's life, where he began to doubt and wonder. Look at it there, verse, verse 2. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or, or, or shall we look for someone else? John, what are you saying? You're the one who stood in the waters of the Jordan, pointed to him, and directed disciples to him, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But John, no doubt, was suffering. He became weak and fatigued and discouraged and doubting. Ever been in that condition? If the great John the Baptist could be in that condition, my assumption is any one of us could be. But Jesus responds, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, You go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. You tell him I even raised the dead. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So even John. This passage is about who Jesus is. And the answer to that question is in his prayer, isn't it? Who exactly is he? Who is it that says on one hand, woe to you, and on the other hand, come? to me. Listen, this is a very simple message. My brothers and sisters, can we do better than this? Is this not what our culture needs to hear? Woe to you! Come to me, Jesus says. Well, who is he? Look at verse 27. What a summary statement. What an incredible statement to leave the lips of a human being. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son with one exception, and anyone to whom the Son chooses or wills to reveal him. Has the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to you? Has he opened the eyes of your understanding and you found yourself one day not believing in him and the next day you were? How do you explain that? Well, it's explained on the divine side of things. He chose to reveal himself to you. On the human side of things, you responded to the invitation, come to me. He 
He is God's Son. By the way, let me just put a plug in. Parents, I hope you don't mind, those of you with youngsters. I hope that you, in your relationship with God, have not left out the possibility that maybe God himself might put his hand on one of your sons or one of your daughters to serve him. You know, God the Father only had one son, and he made him a preacher. Is that a bad thing? What's the next generation going to do if some of our sons and daughters don't feel the call of God upon their lives and the fire of the Spirit burning in their hearts and begin to feel a sense that God is calling me? That the world's idea and the American dream of accumulating as much stuff as possible is a big fat lie. The psalm says, what is man? His life is in his nostrils. Put a clothes pin on it, and within three or four minutes he expires. That's how fragile life is. So I hope you'll take that to heart, some of you young men. Maybe God is calling you to be his servant and to bring his word to this next generation. Us oldies aren't always going to be on the scene, you know. Who is he? He is the unique and eternal Son of God. Well, what did he say? Well, he gave two, two sides of the gospel. If you're lost and don't know him, then you're under judgment. You know, we love John chapter 3. It's the most famous chapter in all the world. And we love it because of John 3.16. And we should. For God, say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the passage doesn't end there. It goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He that believes in the name of the Son of God is not condemned, but he that does not believe is what? Condemned already. We're talking and witnessing to people who are already under judgment. They're already under condemnation because they're lost. We're not talking to people that are on the fence. There is no fence. And so he that has the Son, 1 John 5 says, has life. And he that does not have the Son of God does not have life. And the wrath of God abides on him. Who is he? And what does he say? And what determines what he says to any, any nation, any country, 
any city, any individual. What is it that determines what he says, since it's the same person who says, woe to you and come to me? What determines it? Well, we have that, don't we? Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Oh, what a wise and arrogant and puffed up culture we now live in. We are reaping the whirlwind after having sown to the wind false teaching, beliefs in evolution, the rejection of God from the equation, and now we're reaping the whirlwind. But it's not too late. Because first of all, it's impossible. The, the new birth is impossible. It's a work of God the Holy Spirit. He alone can awaken a dead heart. He alone can bring a person to brokenness and repentance. He alone brings that conviction that draws a person to Christ. And so we're never without hope. We are to be, as Peter wrote, we're to shine as lights in the darkness and to bear witness to those who are lost. What is it that determines it? Oh, there's, the, there's this whole new arrogant, arrogant intelligentsia out there. It's, it's, we're, we're science people. <laughs> you know what? This is no extra charge, by the way. There is absolutely nothing in all creation. I don't care whether you're studying astronomy and the wonders of the vast reaches of God's universe and his creation, or whether you're a geologist studying the various strata of the earth. I don't care whether you're working with the teeming life in the oceans or whether you're investigating lizards and snakes in the desert. There is nothing in all creation that can teach us anything about the origin of the heaven and earth. Why? Because there was only one eyewitness to creation. One. And this is what he said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he goes on and elaborates on that statement. There's nothing in all creation. Now, I'm not saying there's not value in those disciplines. As long as we know that all we're really doing is following the track that leads right back to Genesis 1, verse 1. Well, what determines? Well, if a person is steeped in their pride and arrogance and rebellion, if they say, I have no need of God, I have no need of your ridiculous gospel, 
I have no need to hear. How absurd are you people? You believe that a human being in the gore and blood of a, of a Roman cross, your whole faith, your whole belief, you expect that all eternity is somehow going to be changed because one victim out of hundreds of thousands that were crucified by Rome died on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. You folks believe that? That's not science. That's not even good fiction, according to these arrogant people. Never mind all of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the historicity of his life, and the unrefutable evidence of the power of his resurrection. My brothers and sisters, it's time that we come out of the shadows, stop being apologetic, and stop being intimidated by what Jesus says here, you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. God's truth, God's truth is the great foundation on which we stand. He has given it to us, and it's ours to make us rich beyond measure and to prepare us for eternity. Amen? Amen. We have nothing to apologize for. There's no need to hang our heads and be ashamed. I am not ashamed, Paul said, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Well, what determines the person that hear, hears woe to you is the person who ha has hardened their heart and stiff-armed God and has rejected the Lord. And the only message he has for them is not, oh, don't worry about it. I just unconditionally love everybody. Everybody's going to end up one day in heaven. Just go on and live the lewd and foul and embarrassingly immoral life that you're living. It's okay, because I'm a big, I'm a big pushover. Is that the gospel? Is that what the cross is about? Is God a pushover? What was happening in those six hours on that cross? What was going on when Christ hung between heaven and earth, impaled to that cross with his blood streaming down? What did it mean when he cried, it is finished? He didn't say, I am finished. It is finished. I have paid the full price of sin that I may now move from saying woe to you to come to me. The gospel in six words. And what determines the person, his words to the person who comes to him? Humility, that's the idea. And have revealed them to infants. For, Father, it was well-pleasing in your sight. By infants, what's he mean? He means the person who finally is willing to say, I can't handle life. I've tried it in my own way. I, I, I've made a mess of my life. I can't ha handle the big moral pressures that are around me. I fail and falter all the time. I can't do this. 
And not only that, when I come to the end of my life, I don't know how to die. I don't even know how to die with any degree of peace or security. Right now, out on Tiger Highway, our dear sister, with eyes wide open, courage in her heart, the love of God embracing her, she's preparing to go home to glory. Isn't she? And what an inspiration. God, in the power of the gospel, teaches his people how to die. How to die with hope burning in their hearts. How to die and leave this world behind. How to be ushered into the glory of his presence. He teaches us to be prepared. I think, Jan, I think that it was uh, John Wesley in one of the books that you gave me that was in your dad's library. He made this comment about his people who were deeply committed to Christ and who lived the disciples' life of witness and, and holiness. And he said, he simply said this, our people die well. They die well. That's not morbid. We're just facing up to real stuff, aren't we? We all have so many seconds in this world in light of eternity. And we want to live it and live it out to the fullest. So the person that hears come to me is the person Christ is revealing himself to and he's saying, you need me, come to me. Now, so, so pastor, what's the purpose of today's message? Do you think we're all lost? You know better than that. But this is one of those simple approaches to the gospel that does two things. My first concern this morning is for anyone, I don't care who you are, anyone who is living with a false assurance that you assume that because you associate with a church or attend church or maybe even serve in some way, maybe even pick up the Bible and read it from time to time, all of that is good, and I hope it's a means and helpful to you. But if you're basing your salvation and all eternity upon those behaviors, you're going to be sadly disappointed. That's false assurance. The only person who enjoys the assurance and the peace and the joy of sins forgiven and knows that they're right with God and ready to face eternity is the person who has responded to those three words, come to me. It is a person who saves us. It isn't even primarily information about the person. Jesus Christ must save if we are to be saved at all. He alone, the risen living Christ, is the one who speaks to the heart and says, come to me. He doesn't say, come unto church. That's what pastors say, so keep coming. <laughs> he says, come to me. Why? Because you're weary and you're heavy burdened. And the big, enormous questions of life and eternity aren't within your grasp. You can't deal with them. 
I alone control your destiny. Come to me, and I'll forgive you. I'll restore you. I will have fellowship with you. That's the person to whom he says, come to me. So the message is for anyone that is fearful, anyone that's not sure about your soul, not sure that you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can have that peace, but you must respond to his words, come to me. Otherwise, it's woe to you. That's the message of the gospel. And then secondly, as we finish up, why a simple message like this, Pastor? So that we all are equipped. We're, we're being equipped this morning. This isn't entertainment. Doesn't Scripture say? All Scripture is inspired by God, right? And it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be fully equipped ready for every good work. Why preach? Why teach? Why appeal this way? Why? Because it equips us. Because I guarantee you, you won't get through this week without coming in contact with someone who needs to understand the six words of the gospel. Woe to you. Come to me. Right? Yeah.